Welcome back to the Voice of Eden podcast and season three. I hope you had a good break to recharge your batteries over the summer and you're looking forward to a packed season up to the end of the year with a diversity of guests and perspectives as usual. To kick us off, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Deepak Kalra, President of the Institute for Innovation Through Health Data, IHD, and a long career in primary care and academia within the health data domain. It's very well known internationally in this ecosystem. Welcome, Deepak. Well, Nige, thank you so much. And thank you also to the Eden family for inviting me to join you on this uh, podcast. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Uh, and I'm delighted, of course, with the whole initiative uh, that includes this podcast. So my first name is Deepak and I am currently full time running a uh, a European not-for-profit institute called the European Institute for Innovation Through Health Data, which we founded several years ago. And I could maybe tell you a bit more about that later. My career history, uh, in a nutshell, is I started life as a general practitioner, a family doctor in London, in a very poor part of London, which I found very challenging and interesting. Did that for several, well, almost a decade, never imagining computers would play an important role in my life, uh, really didn't at all. And then they came in by stealth uh, and I got hooked. <clears throat> and eventually I jumped ship into academia and spent the bulk of my career uh, in University College London uh, in health informatics, eventually becoming a professor. And most of my career has been in European projects relating in all sorts of ways to health information, electronic health data. Excellent, thank you so much, Deepak. I mean, uh, I mean, you have a phenomenal pedigree, if I may say so, in terms of uh, our domain, in terms of talking about real world data, real world evidence, information technology in the, in the health domain. Um, thank you for the introduction. So, so without further ado, we have, as usual, a format of, of three questions or prompts just to help us in our narrative. And I'll start with our first one, of course, um, now, you have a very, as I said already, you have a very long and storied career. And uh, to put you on the spot, maybe, it's quite a hard question, possibly. What do you consider to be kind of the main major highlights in the evolution of real-world data, real-world evidence systems and policies over the years? What's kind of been noticeable for you over the last several years, maybe, or, uh, you know, in, in terms of from your career and your personal perspective, in terms of where we've been and kind of where we've got to today? What's your thoughts? Well, it's fascinating. You did kindly give me that question in advance by email, cool. and it got me thinking, uh, as one does. And I was remembering uh, rather sort of, uh, to my surprise, almost a distant memory. So I'm going to go back actually to the mid 1980s, if I may. That's not several years. Right. That's many more years ago than that, when I was, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, in general practice and getting a little bit interested in the use of computers for clinical care. Okay. When a pair of pair of companies in the UK launched a program, an initiative where they would offer GPs free computers, uh, free computer yeah. systems, if yeah. their if they could extract anonymized data from their systems for use by the pharma industry for research. Right. And and this was something that a lot of GPs jumped into because it gave them the chance to have free computing. Mm -hmm. But I remember going to the British Medical Association uh, building occasionally to meetings where the ethics 
of this was being fiercely debated. And the BMA came down very strongly against this idea of data being taken from clinical systems without the consent of patients, although there was some transparency, there were notices in the waiting room and so on, but there was no opt-in, opt-out. It was just literally right. this would be extracted. There was no um, there was no obvious way in which the definition of anonymization was formalized. There was about it was about trust and there was a real discomfort about what would pharma use this data for. Wow. Fascinating. But that was for me, that was the birth of the concept of real world data, but mm -hmm. in rather a negative cloud. And I'd like to then say, <clears throat> you know, if we were to jump forwards from that point, uh, looking ahead, if I jump ahead several years in my own career, um, mm -hmm. When I was actually in research, we were starting to look in projects funded by the UK Medical Research Council at what might be appropriate ways of enabling the research reuse of data from hospital electronic health records. And there we were looking at topics like confidentiality, data protection, and started to explore some of the challenges that the more robustly you anonymize the data and make it more and more impossible to determine anybody's identity, you also damage the quality of the data for its research utility. I recall a researcher looking at, uh, just as an example, uh, <clears throat> looking at vitamin D and bone density in newborn babies saying if you if you round the year of birth of a baby to the nearest year i'm not going to get seasonal exposure of the mother to sunlight ah yes good point <laughs> i need i need finer grain data than that and although that may in today's world of ai sound trivial for me it was a wake up it was the first time a researcher articulated why year of birth was insufficiently fine-grained for a very legitimate research question. So I'm not right. telling you these things because these were global landmark events. No. <laughs> I'm actually no. telling you about things that stuck in, you, you know, you did ask me a rather personal question about my own yeah. observations. Mm. And what I'm telling you really is that uh, for me, the first milestone was, you know, pharma being somewhat treated as an unethical user of data then some okay. years later, Medical Research Council wanting to fund research to look at how this could be done, but encountering issues around what is what is an appropriate way of safeguarding identity whilst doing that. And it was only a few years later that K anonymity uh, got published as a methodology uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> for assessing the extent to which you've anonymized the data set. So these were some landmarks, but I. The right. thing that I think has st stuck in my mind as the much slower journey has not, it isn't about how we orchestrate the permissions environment, but about what are we using the data for? I think okay. the opportunity from using real world data has unfolded very slowly. We right. started with the idea that a farmer might use it, but without really knowing what farmer's going to do with it. So pharma was interested in real world data, 
those early computing projects that I told you about, initiative I've told you about, they folded as free systems because the data quality wasn't good enough. The mm-hmm. data didn't prove usable enough to pharma to justify the kind of funding that the companies wanted from pharma to subsidize the GP systems. In the end, it was not an economic model because the data didn't deliver. And so that has also been an issue. You know, what data is good enough? What can we use it for? And I feel that the the part of this story that has really proved exciting has been seeing the number of actors, pharma, med tech, big tech, academia, patient organizations increasingly, for example, wanting to learn from data. And then in parallel, the data opportunity space really exploding. Um, yes, so we've got before, to look after some of the barriers, but, but you know, the field of what you would call real world data, real world evidence has grown astronomically. Right. Yes. No, thank you. Deepak. Let's go back a bit uh, before we go mm. any further. I mean, just just to unpack some of those aspects you covered, you covered a lot of ground there uh, fantastically, actually. And what I really liked was that, you know, yes, I did ask you in some respects, had a personal question, but but that kind of historical basis in terms of your hands on experience mm. in, in primary care with, with general practitioners and, and, and the systems coming in in the 80s. And what really, I think, resonated for me in your comments was, well, maybe depressingly, actually, that you know, we are still discussing these aspects today, aren't we? I mean, you know, yes, the points around ethics, privacy, uh, uh, privacy preserving technologies and, mm-hmm. and methodologies, um, security and citizens' rights and so forth are still very prevalent discussions today, and maybe unsurprisingly and, and rightfully so. But but also, I, I think you know, some some of even the kind of technical aspects, but importantly, as you say, the methodological aspects in terms of from a researcher's point of view, in, in the terms of, it's a real challenge, isn't it, in terms of addressing the need to use such systems clinically, as you have done uh, in in the past mm-hmm. over time, uh, and, and 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 you know, it's happening and increasingly so across the clinical coalface internationally. And then trying to extract insights from that, whether it's for industry or for, or for or clinical or academic or public health or patient organisations, as you, as you say. And this challenging balance that we're always having to try and address in ensuring that we can do that optimally. And for your point, that data's fit for purpose and can be utilised mm-hmm. to give us insights we have confidence in. But yes. meanwhile, ensuring that we do effectively, quote unquote, the right thing in terms of, you know, ensuring that patients um are protected in such a way obviously that, that you know that they they don't suffer any any um negative consequences of us wanting to to know more about how best to you know man- understand natural history or manage disease or you know treatments and outcomes and 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 so on mm. and so forth and i think i think it's fascinating the way that you embedded that in that history from from the 80s i'm really glad you raised that because in some respects as you say <laughs> growth has risen almost exponentially in terms of need but we are mm-hmm. really still debating very same or similar issues today well i think that's a really fascinating observation Nigel, and i would have to agree with you completely so if right. i was to put that with in 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 my words slightly differently but emphasizing mm-hmm. the point on the cautionary side let's say since the mid 80s we have seen a succession of data protection legislations, uh, directives, regulation coming in uh, 
that have progressively strengthened and made more formal the expectations that an individual should have about how their data is safeguarded and how it's transparent to them, what their data is being used for, and all those things that everybody, I hope, on the podcast knows well that are, for example, the GDPR principles. Mm -hmm. So on the one side, the, the constraints side of the balancing scales have never been richer, more complicated, in a way more burdensome, you could say. But then on the opposite side, the technical innovations that allow for anonymization, assessments of the risk of exposure of individuals, the ability to conduct all sorts of more sophisticated research without touching the data too closely, things like federated analysis, which right. I know your podcast listeners will perhaps know inside out for breakfast. You know, there are the technological advances that are on the opposite side of the scale that say, despite the increasingly stringent expectations, we can meet those pretty well with technological advances. But what we're left with <clears throat> is the thing that sits in between the two that weighs up the apples and the pears because they're not directly comparable, you know, right. to what, you know, is federate, federated analysis is not a specific countermeasure to any particular GDPR principle. You know, it's mm -hmm. a generic approach that helps you to comply holistically with a number of GDPR principles. So they are sort of apples and pears on one level, but what we have right. in the middle is society weighing up these things and saying, what is good enough? What do we agree with? What do we not agree with? And here, I think I would like to side with you that the maturity of the debate, the mm -hmm. maturity of the principles that are put into the thinking around how we evaluate the pros and cons of data uses has not matured anything like as breathtakingly as the two sides of the scales. <clears throat> yeah, And I think that yep. the, the public discourse on the topic still is a little too fear-based. Mm -hmm. um, the decision-making is still always on the grounds that any exposure of data is a disaster uh, and right. that we must lock the data down as far as possible and the data users must prove absolutely the stringency of all their measures. And I do think we have to respect data protection, but where do, where does societal value come into the thinking Absolutely. process? Absolutely. When you are doing anything else in the privacy space, <clears throat> you are weighing up pros and cons. I mean, the other day I went to collect a repeat prescription okay. from my GP and the pharmacy was a little busy, meaning that there were several other people in earshot. And I got mm -hmm. to the counter and the lady <laughs> pulled up my prescription and says, please, can you give me your date of birth? Please, can you give me your address? Because that is their way of verifying that I'm getting the right prescription. And right. I have to decide, as somebody who knows all about data protection and security, am I happy to voice these things, mm -hmm. which are, after all, uh, <laughs> personal data, in front of several people I don't know? Uh, right. who will be able to hear this stuff. You know, and what do I do? Do I say, oh, no, 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 this is data protection. You've got to take me into a quiet room. 
before you I'll, I'll reveal this stuff to you or I'll write it down or something. And then you oh. must shred the paper and I must see you shred the paper. Do I take that stringent data protection view or do I take a pragmatic view which mm -hmm. says, I don't think the risks are very high. I think the benefit to me is I could leave with my prescriptions in 10 seconds or I can make a big issue and be stuck here for half an hour. Um, so <laughs> I'm weighing up all sorts of things. And we do that all the time. Agreed. But I don't see that happening much when it comes to decision making about data access. And I think it's because the benefits of using data, the societal value, the research results, the products, the innovations don't get related back to the data very well. So people are joyful at, you know, COVID vaccines, but we don't remind them mm -hmm. that these vaccines critically relied upon many, many thousands or more of data points that were examined in ways that had to then do the best they could with information security, but couldn't guarantee, if you like, CIA indemnity against, you know, nice. very, very powerful force looking for your data yes yeah, so so just to, to pick up a few of those, those points mm. i mean i think i mean we've um, um you know we've collaborated for a long time ourselves together and discussed yeah. this at length between ourselves and with other colleagues and this balance between as you say the benefits of using health data for generating evidence and insights and for research versus well i suppose at the moment much of the time we talk about perceived risks with, yes. as you pointed out, evidently, no real view on relative proportionality of those risks for a start. I mean, generally, a lot of risks are viewed as all mm -hmm. equal, and they're not in terms of potential frequency and or, you know, scale of impact and so on. But also, not all perceived risks actually result in actual harms, of course, either. Um, mm. But you're right. I mean, I mean yeah, we're, we're bound to agree, I suppose. But there is this, this this complete imbalance between risk and benefit. And of course, it's not just in the health domain of use of data, of course. And therein lies our challenge. There's a whole societal issue here, which could take up more than a podcast episode, I suspect, in discussing. But but certainly yeah. you know, the digitalization of our society has brought with it some benefits, uh, some consequences, some unintended consequences, which is more maybe more of a challenge. Um, but mm -hmm. also, um, yeah, a complete imbalance in in how best to tackle this, whether it's you know ethically and morally or yeah. technologically and so forth. So yes, that's a very interesting aspect, and I really loved your anecdote <laughs> of being in the pharmacy because actually, and you said that we do this all the time, and it's true. I mean, if you look at uh, other aspects of our lives, like using smartphones, for instance, um, generally many people mm -hmm. now have a smartphone, uh, of course. But we day in day out. We we compromise, don't we? We decide that, for instance, we will give away information on our location because it allows us to, for instance, use certain you know map applications, help us get yeah, from A yeah, to B, sure. understand what's in the locality or, or the weather and so on. But therein, therein is us divulging actually to whomever we may not even know necessarily a third party our location somewhere on the planet, but we do that because we get mm -hmm. some perceived benefits from it. Um, yeah. Yeah, but Nigel, if I could interrupt you there, you said we oh. don't always know, and I think that's the that's actually a really important point. I'd like to tease right. out with you, if right. I may. I cool. think that what I'm not wanting to do is to say because certain players, and let's take you know the pharma sector as an example, because I know that's a 
company that you're you know you're part of that sector so we'll pick you as mm-hmm. an example because you do good things with data like you develop great vaccines great drugs you ensure the safety of them and so on we should be willing to compromise and allow data that's not terribly well safeguarded to be used by you that's not at all what i'm saying i think that the stringency can be there because in my experience actually a lot of the organizations like yourselves are very careful with data use what i'm concerned about is the public don't get the transparency about the pros and the cons they only get the cons and therefore we are left guessing what is the public view Uh or the public view is is not given an airing in a balanced way and i'm not suggesting that we should agree to shortcut on data protection nor Mm -hmm. am i suggesting that we should make data nearly impossible to use what i'm saying is we're not open enough with the public about the pros and the cons in a way that they can understand so that we can really understand where they want to set and calibrate that comfort and the balance what we have instead is people in official positions making decisions on behalf of society mostly they're very honest good people who are doing their best but inevitably they err on the side of caution right because they don't have any mandate from the public to weigh the pros and cons in the way the public want them to because the public haven't been invited to express that okay we need to engage the public more and i do like the fact uh nige on the eden website for example Mm -hmm. there are especially on your news pages there are examples of research findings right Uh, and occasionally i will pinch one or two of those examples for slides when i'm speaking um because they are examples of like recently there was something about neurological complications from covid versus covid vaccines Mm -hmm. where many 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 thousands of records i think it was millions had to be looked at in order to discover very subtle uh, probabilistic differences now that's not possible if you just look in one hospital you need a massive data set and we need the public to see these examples and say look do you want this kind of research to take place if so we're not asking you to give away your data in a, in a dangerous way we're asking you to understand how does the eden framework operate in a way that safeguards your data are you happy with that Right. You know, and I think that's what I'm missing. I'm missing that engagement that helps the public to see. But the positive examples of societal value coming from your website and, of course, others who do big data research are really important um, yeah. because no, they absolutely. help to bring that balance. Sure. No, indeed. So I'm going to move us along. But again, because yeah. of time, it's really frustrating because we yes. could talk for a long time, I'm sure. And I think the audience would, uh, would appreciate that. <laughs> but, um, but actually, so you mentioned the website, and that obviously made, led me to, to think about, uh, I mean, your your own institute, the, in, the Institute for Innovation Through Health yes. Data here in, in Europe, which you're, you're president of. Um, mm. Tell us a bit more about IHD, kind of, you know, its background, how it was set yeah. up. I, I think in some respects, Absol- in response I- to some of the things we've discussed already. But yeah, maybe tell us a bit more about yeah. IHD and where you are, where you'd like to be, your kind of vision, as it were. And I suspect, you know, some mm. of the things we've talked about already, IHD is responding to. I know you are. 
Um, but yeah, maybe that would be very interesting, I think, to discuss uh, a little bit more about uh, the work you're, you're currently doing today as well. Yeah, well, thank you very much. So several years ago, I, I was involved with colleagues in a number of European projects, some of mm -hmm. those, and an important one in particular called ehl for cr right. was looking at how might it be possible to better design clinical trials by running queries on hospital electronic health records just in order to count the number of patients who might in theory be eligible for a trial you do that across a number of hospitals across europe and then you get a feeling for what might be the recruitment pool if you were to go live with this trial and that allows com companies who want to run a study to refine the criteria until they think they will be enough patients to make the trial viable. At the same that, time, um, sorry, uh, Deepak, just to oh, clarify. Sorry, sorry just mm. to clarify. And that's counts. So the, obviously there were no there was no identities and no, no, it's just numbers. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it might be saying there are forty-two patients of which thirty match your drug treatment criteria. 17 match your lab value criteria and so the total number of people who meet different criteria would be more than 42 but it would basically give a feeling for which of the, you know uh, how do the criteria map out among the population of patients but in such a way that you would never be able to work out even a clinical pattern on a single individual forget names or addresses none of that but not okay. even the clinical pattern would be about a person Nice. Uh, so, and we did we did work. We consulted not only ethics committees across Europe, but patient organisations across Europe, and there was a general feeling that this was an acceptable approach. Uh, but in parallel, I was involved in some other European projects looking at uh, how do we better join up clinical care, how do we help health organisations to better learn from their data. And we realized when we brought our colleagues together across the projects that there was a common ground, which is that health data, health data was too much of a holy grail. Um, there really needs to be better awareness of what is good data protection, better awareness of the value of data use by different stakeholders, which we've been discussing, but also data quality, better mm -hmm. adoption of interoperability standards, but even promoting, for example, hospitals to use their data. Please look at your data and right. discover which of your patients you're doing really well with, which of your patients are you not doing well with, so that you can know where you should target quality improvements in care. So we saw a huge importance in this, growing importance of patients, both creating data and themselves using data. And so there was a almost a consensus right across all of the players we worked with to say there needs to be an organization at a European level that focuses on health data. It must be neutral. It must not have vested interests. It can receive money from multiple stakeholders, but its governance must be neutral and its role must be to be a catalytic force for better data value to all. Uh, in an, in this neutral way. We must support industry, we must support academia, we support, support healthcare organisations, support decision makers, and then we should look for the barriers, find out what are the things today that are holding us back, and try and be practical. So don't just be 
a hot air institute, really mm -hmm. try and find ways of improving the things that are currently barriers. Uh, and you know, you've understood promoting good practice in data protection, in particular yeah. for big data research, developing codes of practice, templates, guidelines. We've done that stuff. We're now very focused on data quality as another topic. How can we help hospitals uh, and GP mm -hmm. practices to better care about the quality of the data inside their systems to get their own value from it? How can we look at the issues of investment that is needed to improve data quality? Uh, and who should be the, the co-investors in those kind of topics? Uh, interoperability standards, very important area. So I, I can't enumerate all the topics. What I could say no. to you is that we, we are finding ourselves in an area where different stakeholders do want to come together. A message I've conveyed many, many times is the days when the data challenges could be addressed by a single, single stakeholder are over. All right. the easy problems have been solved. Right. We're only left with the hard problems and okay. stakeholders have to come together for that. We've got to work together. And so this is words like co-creation are often mm -hmm. on my lips because that, that is how we have to work. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you so much for the overview. Well, I think, well, first and foremost, yes, of IHD and, and uh, your history and, and, and what you're focusing on, and which is which is broad, but all in, linked and meaningful in, in, in that way. But also, I think there's a prevailing, if I may be so bold, philosophy, which has, mm -hmm. I think, permeated your your history again, uh, as you outlined earlier, yeah. through IHD in terms of the, 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 the benefits of using health data, but ensuring that that health data is fit for purpose. You mentioned, obviously, mm -hmm. in terms of data. Mm -hmm. but importantly, that you're, you see you see a really a requirement to ensure that people are facilitated in being able to do that, i.e., you know, there's the resources, there's methods, um, there's uh, yeah. finances, of course, um, but also important, as you say, collaboration, because you're absolutely completely concur with your, your comments. You know, there's no one stakeholder that can do all this now. We all have to, no. to collaborate. And in fact, maybe it's a flavor of the 21st versus the 20th century. I'm not sure. But but certainly, you know, collaboration yeah. is very much at the, at the forefront of, of a lot of we, what we do, because um, no one is mm. necessarily expert in all, you know, the usual story. Um, mm -hmm. And you, mm -hmm. we need to pull in those who are to assist us. And I say us, it could be, as you say, hospitals, for instance, primary care practitioners, other care providers and so forth. And I really, really pick up on your comment about look at your own data, you know, get the benefits of using yes. your own data first and foremost. And I think importantly, there's kind of a quid pro quo, isn't there? There's a there's a lot of interest from the likes of researchers, whether they're in academia, industry or elsewhere. But actually, that needs to be balanced with a quid pro quo that those who therefore host or utilize this data, generate this data, get the benefit from that data first and foremost and it's not a kind of one-sided imbalanced relationship between those who who are, who are interested from a research yes. perspective and benefit alone and i think that's i think come forward a lot in your comments so far in in in, in today's episodes well, yeah you've summarized it very well i i think that it's not reasonable to expect a hospital to pick an example a hospital okay to say to a hospital, look, you, you will really get much better data if you appoint a full-time data quality manager. What we've seen is hospitals that have somebody 
whose job it is. It could be full time. It could be part time. But somebody who has a focus in their job description on the data quality of the hospital and engages with the clinical teams, engages with the ICT people, looks at the capability of the systems that are deployed and sees if they are facilitating good data entry or not. Having okay. somebody with that role is powerful and makes a big mm -hmm. difference to your data. But it's an investment. Uh, nice. If we said to a hospital, you should invest in that person, give them an office, give them a computer, give them protected time to hold workshops and events, and other people outside your hospital will benefit from your data, but will give you nothing in return, then you're actually asking a hospital to put money into something for which there's no return, mm -hmm. and to say to them, actually, this could have been spent on an intensive care nurse's salary. Right. Right. <laughs> don't do right. that help invest in data that other people want that's not realistic to expect no. so what we have to do is to show to a hospital that if they invest in the quality of their data and then use their own data you can't just have the data you've got to use it it's for purpose then you can identify areas where your care isn't optimal you can improve clinical outcomes. You might even avoid patients having complications in hospital that keep them in hospital longer. In other words, you might save costs right. that offset the cost of the salary. It might right. not be exactly equal, but you will generate some income savings through better quality care. You will actually have happier patients, um, which is really important. Uh, then you start to make the the investment in data quality a little bit more of a shared benefit. Right. And, and, and you've used that word pointedly, I think, a few times, investment. And, and that's really important, yes. isn't it? It's, it shouldn't be seen as a spend, i.e., you know, oh, you know. No, no. You the money and it's a spend and, 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 you know, then it's gone. But this is an investment for today and an investment clearly for the future. In terms of yes. in terms of as you say the the continued cycle here of generating data, ensuring fitness for purpose and quality, well, clinical use first and foremost, of course, but also for research. Um, and yes, and, and, and said, even I mean, let's not forget patient care, Nigel. I mean, the exactly. number of times where a patient has repeated tests or maybe yeah. a repeated prescription because they've gone to a new care provider who didn't know the history because the records didn't transfer or maybe even people have a drug to which which cross reacts with something else in their mm -hmm. system in their body because somebody didn't have the data we are doing harm to patients on a daily basis by not sharing their data so the the value of health data to the individual patient to the care system and to all sorts of learning whether it's research or public health decision making or policy making my belief is that we are really still underusing data to deliver value back to everybody and that it is absolutely to use your term it is not a cost on its own it's an expenditure sure but it shouldn't be seen as just a drain on the system that we have to buy better equipment or, or connectivity between systems it's it's an investment in the ability for us all to learn from the data at different mm -hmm. scales of granularity and improve uh, the health experience of patients and the public 
uh, in the near term and the long term. Absolutely. And I mean, you said a number of important things already, of course, but one thing I really want to pick up on, which I think is extremely valuable, is the point you made that actually in not using data, not generating insights, not generating evidence, we are also causing harm. You know, to your point, we, you know, oh, yes. yeah, we, we may not be able to provide safe clinical care. Uh, we may mm. not be aware of certain aspects of an individual themselves, biologically and therapeutically, whatever. Like you said, you know, interactions, the drug-drug interactions, for instance, is a, is a good example um, of many. Mm. Um, but indeed, um, people, patients, citizens, do actually every day, as you say, unfortunately, uh, end up harmed in some way, often because we don't know enough uh, rather than, you know, uh, we know everything and and also therefore as you said throughout our conversation today there is a balance a compromise maybe to be made as you as you were thinking about in the pharmacy picking up your prescription earlier mm -hmm. and your do i weigh up uh just having a quick transaction that maybe someone might be in earshot and hear something that's that you know in that, of, of that transaction but i'm i've got my prescription i'm out or, or I make a bit of a fuss about it and so forth. But but actually that may also be, uh, I need to make a decision. If the pharmacist had something important to say about, well, actually I had to change the dose or change the brand or, or, or the type of drug you were receiving because I noted you had another issue and if that maybe got missed, but it's important because you would have mm. got some side effects. So please note this, that this is slightly different to what was originally prescribed and you discussed with your GP or consultant and so forth. So maybe that's spoken about in quite clear earshot and you would need to make a decision, well, am I happy about that or, or would, would I not be? But the important thing of, of all of these things is that, yes, there may be some concern of risk around confidentiality, but meanwhile, there's a concerted effort to ensure you're safely taking your new drug um, and yes. it's not causing any yeah. problems. Yeah, okay. That's very nice. Um, yeah, that's a nice example. Yeah. Yeah. No, so, so just that. extrapolating on your your own anecdotes, if I may, there. So, look, mm. we've we've coming close to the end of time. Always frustrating every episode uh, because I, I know <laughs> we could talk for a lot longer. So, I'm going to pose a, kind of a, a, an end uh, prompt or, or question, uh, which is a bit unfair because it's quite a challenging mm. one, I suppose. But, I mean, you know, you've, we've got a lot of ground in in in, in terms of our conversation and our, our first questions around the highlights of the past and, and what IHD and allied aspects today and, and and so on um and of course the future is always hard to predict as we're all told and it's true mm, um mm. but maybe maybe i couch this in a way in terms of what your personal dream might be in terms of as we see out the remainder of this oh, decade okay. over the next few years yeah what do you what would you like to see or what do you think we'll see, you'll see next i mean you, we've gone far ranging from the 80s till today and then maybe over the next few yeah. years based on all of that history over the last well 40 years unbelievable isn't it um where do you see us going in the next few years well i i, I mean you've allowed me a dream so i don't have to be too realistic uh, but i can at least be be hopeful I mean, right. I would love us to care more about health data such that we invest in systems that collect data and capture data in ways right. that make it easy for it to be computable. That means clinical systems, that means patient systems, okay. wearables and so on, so that the data is fit 
for analysis purposes, that it's interoperable. That means it's standardized when it's captured and stored, that it's of good quality and that it's capable of being reused. Secondly, right. I would really like us to have resolved at least to a sensible level the issues and dilemmas around privacy versus utility of data mm. such that we can perform a large number of learning analytics okay. without going through too many hoops, preferably without saying every request has to go to a human committee that meets every three months and will give you their answer in another few months. Uh, that actually we have computable rules that allow the learning from the data to be occurring in near to real time. So that as we start to discover new outbreaks of disease, uh, mm -hmm. new safety issues, unmet needs, innovations that can resolve those needs, we can discover them fast. And from the data by learning at a massive scale. And then thirdly, that we have human and organizational processes that take innovative learning and translate it into solutions that the public can actually get. Because it's no good us having the knowledge if we don't then translate the knowledge back. You saw how fast we could get COVID vaccines approved when we really tried. Right, right. Uh, I would like that to be, I know, I know that not everybody would say, oh, we can do that for everything else. But it illustrated, I think, very nicely how when we work hard to get innovative solutions back into the public sphere, we can do it. But it's not that's not the computer now. That's people and processes and rules. So we really have to have a method for making sure that, that what we learn from the data leads to genuine benefit. Absolutely. That's my dream. No, I mean, it, I'm sure it's one that I certainly, but certainly I hope our audience will also share with you in terms of a dream going forward in the future. And I really particularly like, and actually, it, very intriguingly, I haven't heard many others talk about this, uh, generally at least, about, you know, your point about, for instance, removing a lot of the, uh, for instance, administrative and, and, and approvals overheads with technology itself, i.e., as you said, you know, having rules and algorithms instead of committees and, and ensuring that we move to a more almost yeah. real time process. And I think that's a fascinating aspect, which I don't think is even readily showing up in uh, in emerging legislation yeah. either at the moment. No, no, it's not. I mean, committees and things are needed, but they should be looking yeah. at edge cases, unusual cases, new, yeah. unfamiliar requests, but okay. familiar things should be reflected in computable rules so that they are not bottlenecked, if you like, into right. bureaucratic processes. Right. Deepak, it's been a fascinating conversation. I, I suspect this is not maybe your first, it's your first occurrence of, of, of being on the podcast, but I sincerely hope it will not be the last. I look forward to having future conversations uh, over time. Uh, as well as 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 we see really quite a rapidly changing and uh, emerging environment of, of using real world data in a very large scale mm. in a meaningful way that generates evidence that's important insightful and actionable for clinicians and patients of course um, and care providers but also those interested from a research perspective from all sorts of quarters as well you're doing remarkable work at the Institute for Innovation through Health Data, 
uh, and and it's been fabulous for us all to collaborate in that that scope uh, with you and IHD colleagues, and, uh, and and certainly look forward to continuing growth and development of your of your institute and and your activities as well. I will add the URL and linkage to to the to the program notes, of course, to to IHG for the audience. Um, I do want to thank you for the time today and, and again a, a really involved conversation we covered a lot of ground and i really sincerely hope the audience uh, will appreciate that um thank you for your time deepak well thank you nige and thank you eden for the invitation uh, i'm very grateful and i've really enjoyed our discussion pleasure absolute pleasure look forward to another one thank you very much sincerely hope you enjoyed the opening episode of season three and we look forward to the next episode with professor lisbeth peters University of Hasselt, Belgium, and lead for the Multiple Sclerosis Data Alliance. Until then, enjoy also our back catalogue for the first and second seasons. Yeah.